Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. We're in part five. We're going through the life of David. And the story of David is really big. It starts in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and it goes all the way to the second, all, you know, that half of 1 Samuel, all the way to chapter 31, and then on beyond that, all of uh, 2 Samuel is all about David. Okay, so we've made it through chapters 16, uh, 17, and 18. So chapter 16, we looked at, you know, David being anointed king, and chapter 17, we looked at the famous story of David and Goliath. And chapter 18, last week we looked at David and Jonathan's uh, uh, friendship. And we looked at, uh, you know, traits and characteristics of, of true friendship and what it means to love people. And, and uh, I, just, I just love God's Word. Don't you love God's Word? Isn't it amazing how relevant these stories and God's Word continue to be to our lives today? Is that not amazing? Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need God's Word. And so today we're going to keep going in this story. We're going to pick up 1 Samuel chapter 19. And we're going to actually cover three chapters, okay? So it will take me to about 11.30, but we're going to cover three chapters, 1 Samuel 19, 20, and 21, okay? Like, there is a lot of scripture in this message. Um, we're going to go far, and I'm calling this message when God strips everything away. And I really believe for some of you here, there are some of you here today, there's a warning in this message for you. Uh, for many of you here today, there is a tremendous encouragement for you. I really am blessed. I, I can't believe I get paid to do a job where I get to study God's Word and then come and talk about it. It's just awesome how applicable this message is. And I think when the Holy Spirit is going to encourage us, and if we'll open up our hearts to Him, He's going to really uh, touch us this morning. So why don't you bow your heads with me and, and close your eyes, and let's ask Him to speak to us. Lord Jesus, this is all about you, and this is not about entertainment. This is purely about you. We want to live our lives for you. And there are some people here this morning, uh, they're in need of a warning, a loving warning. And there's a bunch of other people here this morning, they're in need of encouragement to endure, to keep going. And Holy Spirit, we need you to speak to each one of us. Would you strengthen us in your word? Would you grow us in love for you? Would, you? would you help us as a church to fall in love with your word? This word would just become a part of us. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 19, lots and lots of scripture today. When God strips everything away, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and remember at the end of chapter 18, we, we saw last week, Saul is trying to kill David, right? So uh, he hates David. And sp Saul spoke to da Jonathan, his son, this is verse 1, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Okay, in verse 4, and Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, and by the way, I mean, we just looked at one trait of Jonathan's last week and what a good friend he is. We could do a whole series on Jonathan and being a true friend, but here we see another trait of being a good friend is a good friend always sticks up for you behind your back. Doesn't matter where, they always stick up for you. They always believe the best about you. They always hope. They always see the best. They remember the best. Uh, a, a true friend is someone behind your back, in front, of your, in front of your face. It doesn't matter. They will always stick up for you. And we see this with Jonathan. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand. And, and look at what a true friend does. A true friend sees all the best in you. They, they, they just, they remember all the good things you've done. They remember those things even when you have forgotten. People are not your true friend. They remember all the bad things. That's way more common. But a true friend remembers the good things. And he is just able, right off the cuff, he just remembers all these good things uh, to his dad. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. 
Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul, now look at this, and Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Now, that's an amazing answer to prayer, right? So Saul wants to kill David. No doubt David is calling out to God. He's praying. He wants to not be killed by Saul. And here Jonathan goes and talks to Saul, and Saul changes his mind. Is that not, is that or is that not an amazing answer to prayer? Saul changed his mind. That's an answer to prayer, right? Isn't that exciting? That would be something to get excited about. Except we all know what's going to happen next, don't we? Except we all know what's going to happen next, okay? Two verses from here, uh, or uh, three verses from here, I should say, which we're going to read in just a moment. Three verses from here, Saul is going to switch his mind again, and he's going to try and kill David again, okay? Now, have you ever been in a situation like that in your life where you go down, and you pray like crazy, and it's like God answers your prayer, and then right after it seems like you just got this big answer to prayer, it's like things turn around again, and it's like God took the answer away from you. I know a lot of people that have gone through stuff like that. And you know that it's often harder to go through something like that? Like sometimes I wonder, God, why don't you just leave me in the dumps? Because when I'm in the dumps, and then I think you answer my prayer, and I come out of the dumps, and then I go back into the dumps, that's harder than if I just would never have come out. Isn't that true? Like, isn't that hard? That's when you start to question, you know, you got some kind of a diagnosis, something, you know, some kind of health issue or whatever, and you're really worried, and it's weighing on you, and you pray like crazy, and then things seem to turn around. Maybe, maybe you have depression or something like that, and you pray like crazy, and people pray for you, and then all of a sudden the cloud lifts, and you're like, it's gone, and you're so excited. God answered my prayer. You've been praying maybe some financial thing, maybe for a spouse or for a child, and things turn around, and you're so excited, and you tell all your friends right? David, no doubt, is telling all his friends, and he's, ex- he's, he's rejoicing. God answered my prayer. Saul doesn't want to kill me anymore. You tell all your friends, look what God did for me. He answered my prayer. And then all of a sudden, things turn around. And it's like, God, what are you doing? I thought you answered my prayer. And I've told all my friends that you answered my prayer. And now you tell him that he's looking bad, but really you're afraid because you're looking bad, right? But it's like, I'm looking bad, you're looking bad. I told everyone you answered this prayer, and now I'm back in the same pit where I was before. I wish I would never have come out of it. And a lot of Christians right then, you know, if you just go into the pit, it's all about endurance. But when you go into the pit, it's the ups and downs. It's when you get those things going together, and you feel like you're getting answers to prayer, and you feel like those answers to prayer are getting stripped away. That is often the thing that shakes Christians the most. Because then it's not just a matter of of endurance. It's not just a matter of making it through. Now you're left with all kinds of self-doubt and questioning. Did I hear right? Was that God? Does God answer prayers? Does God care? And we're going to see in this story with David, David doesn't just have lots of lows. He has highs and then lows. And in many ways, I think that's even harder. But you'll find David nowhere in this story does he question the goodness of God. Even when it seems like an answer to prayer has been ripped away from him and stolen, you're going to see him trusting God. It's a powerful thing. It's an encouragement for us, right? Well, let's keep going here in verse uh, 7. Verse 7, and Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, right? So here's the part where they're celebrating. Yes, God answered prayers. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Verse 9. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. And David must be wondering, what in the world? God, what are you doing? What are you doing? But he alluded, Saul said he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Verse 11, 
Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And I want, to, I want you to watch now. We're going to watch the rest of this story. God is now going to systematically strip everything away from David. Okay? He's gone from the heights. He conquered Goliath. He was full of boldness. There's no fear in this man. And uh, he gets promoted in the army. He is winning all kinds of battles against the Philistines. He's got position. He's got salary. He's got power. He's got adoring fans. He's got everything. And now God is going to systematically strip every single thing away from him. So verse 12, so Michael let, down, let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. He's going to lose his wife now, okay? She's, it's not that she's leaving him, but he's forced away from her. He won't see her for another decade, Another eight to ten years, he won't see her. The next time he sees her, she won't be his wife anymore because Saul will have married her off to another man. Okay? So he loses his wife. He's got to flee away from his home, his comfort. He's lost his position. He's being stripped away of absolutely everything. Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel. So he's lost position. He's lost house. He's lost his wife. Now he's going to run to Samuel. Samuel is his mentor. Samuel is a godly man. He's the one who anointed him king. He still has quite a bit of power and respect in Israel. He should be a safe place for David. David's going to run to Samuel, okay? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramon, told him all that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. So he's lost his wife, his home, all those things, but he still has Samuel. But now we're going to, you're going to watch, and you're going to see God's going to take Samuel away from him too. He's going to strip every single safe place and refuge away from David. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. No place is safe, not even Samuel. Now the story is going to get a bit weird, and I just love when the Old Testament gets weird. And we will take a little bit of a rabbit trail here, and not because it has much to do with the message, but just so it helps you, it'll help you as, you as you read the Bible when you see some of these stories, it'll help you understand it. But it is going to get a little weird here. And when they saw, so Saul sends these guys to arrest David, and when they saw the company of prophets, so they go to arrest him, prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Now, uh, and they're going to fail. So, now this is, uh, we often read these stories, we read them too quickly, we don't stop to meditate, we just kind of read over and we don't pay attention. Oh, of course they didn't, they didn't arrest them because they prophesied. Doesn't that just make sense, right? Like, what, so, but we don't stop to think, like, have you ever stopped to think, okay, wh what is, why? What is happening here? A bunch of guys go to arrest David, and then they prophesy, and they don't arrest him? Like, what's happening? You know, there's three times in the, in the Old Testament where we read uh, where this happened, okay? Where people would suddenly, like, like, you're wondering, are they just, you know, suddenly spouting off a word from the Lord? Like, are they just spouting off, hey, I see a picture of you, and there's a beanstalk growing to the clouds, and I got this word, and I just want to encourage you? It's not that kind of thing, Okay? This is not a prophecy like, you know, when Jeremiah or Isaiah or Daniel or Ezekiel would write down a prophecy from the Lord and they're in control of their faculties and their senses. That's not what ha was happening here. Three times in the Old Testament, and I'm going to show you one other time, but three times in the Old Testament, two of them happened in 1 Samuel. Uh, one of them happens in the book of Numbers. There is this strange thing where people will just suddenly spontaneously prophesy and it's like they can't control themselves, Okay. I'll show you one other instance. It's in the book of Numbers, just so that when you read these stories, you'll go, okay, I know what's happening here. This is not like uh, they came there and then they shared an encouraging word and then they left, okay? These men want to arrest David. They're bad people, okay, on behalf of an evil king. But something happened that's out of their control. They prophesied and they leave and they're unable to arrest him, okay? Uh, if we go to Numbers chapter 11, 
is the first time we see something like this happening in the Old Testament. And just a little bit of background, Moses and the Israelites are out in the wilderness, and Moses is complaining to the Lord. He says, I can't, I, it's too much work for me taking care of these people. And part of the reason is because there's so many of them, and part of the reason is because they're a bunch of whiners, okay? And so Moses complains, and he says, I can't, I can't lead this people all on my own. And so God says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my spirit on 70 elders, and those 70 elders are going to help you lead Israel, okay? So we pick up the story in, in Numbers chapter 11. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now, the interesting part is the next part, verse 26. Now, two men remained in the camp, so not all 70 were able to make it to the meeting. Only 68 could make it to the meeting. Two guys were left in, in, in camp, and they weren't at the meeting. Okay, One named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. They just spontaneously break out. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? I would that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. So what is going on here uh, with these kind of like spontaneous prophecy that seems to be out of people's control, okay? So a little bit of background. In ancient culture, it was common, and actually it still happens today in some pagan cultures and some occultic uh, practices. Uh, usually, again, this is very demonic. In this case, obviously, it was God at work in ancient Israel, but usually it's very demonic. But in ancient cultures, they have, would have these religious practices where they would uh, be taken into a trance, and very demonic, but literally, so you'd have your priest or whoever, they'd be looking for guidance or something from their, their small g god, the demon, and they would go into a trance, and the, 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 the demonic uh, spirit would literally possess them. And this still happens today in some rituals. I, I've, uh, I've even seen documentaries on this, but, and literally the person goes into a trance, they're not in control of themselves, they begin to speak things, uh, they're out of their control, and it's very, uh, it's very creepy because it's, again, it's demonic. Um, but what God was doing here in the Old Testament, this obviously is not demonic. This is God at work. But in a couple of instances, God did something similar, but not creepy or demonic, obviously, because it was God doing it. But in order to show uh, that his spirit was resting on someone, he would put his spirit on them so powerfully they would go into a trance. They would be out of control of themselves, and they would be prophesying. And everybody could see by doing that, like in the, court, in the case of Numbers 11, these guys literally, they would go into a trance, they would begin to prophesy. And I'll show you in the rest of the story. This will become clear. But uh, in doing so, God is showing all of Israel. He's showing Moses, and he's showing these 70 elders, I have put my spirit on these men, and now they're going to be helping Moses lead. Uh, second time this happens is actually in 1 Samuel 10 with King Saul is after Samuel anoints Saul, uh, Samuel says he wants to prove to Saul that, he, he, that this is really God. This is not something he's making up. He says there's three signs that are going to happen today. One is you're going to find your donkeys. Uh, two, you're going to meet three guys on the road who are going to give you two loaves of bread. And the third one is you're going to meet a group of prophets and you are suddenly going to prophesy. And what happens in 1 Samuel 10 is Saul is walking along the road and all the signs happen and he meets these prophets and he falls into a trance and he prophesies. And that's the proof to him and to others that God has put a spirit on him to be king. Okay, so now we fast forward again to 1 Samuel 19. Saul sends people to arrest David. In this case, God's not putting his spirit on these men to show that his, his, his spirit is resting on them. He's putting his spirit on them to stop them from arresting David. He is showing that his hand of protection is on David. 
Okay? And so they, go, they show up to arrest David, and when they get there, they fall over. They're in a trance. They prophesy, and they get up and leave. They're not, they're not able to arrest him, all right? So verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied, okay? So I can just imagine what these conversations look like. Saul is getting more and more irritated, okay? He sends a group of guys. They come back. Where's David? Uh, we fell over and started prophesying. Sends a second group of guys. They come back. No, David. Where's David? We fell over and prophesied. Okay? Third time. Same thing. Okay? Now, you would think at this point, okay? Logically. Let's think about this logically. God is supernaturally knocking people out so they can't arrest David. At this point, you probably think after three tries, maybe I should stop, right? Like, logically, this is not a good idea. God is obviously protecting David. This is not what Saul does. Okay? Saul is determined. He is absolutely, utterly determined that he is going to arrest David at all costs, okay? And so look what happens. Verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah. Okay, this is not a good idea. You've sent three groups of guys over. Try and arrest them. Fail. Try and arrest them. Fail. Try and arrest them. Fail. Okay, fine. I'll go, okay? Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Sikhia. Now, does this, again, does this make, if we're, if we're thinking about it logically, does this make any sense at all? And yet, isn't it oh, oh so human? I wonder how many of us, we just haven't done it in a way like this. It's always obvious when it's someone else. I wonder how many of us have wanted something so bad in our lives at some point. I bet you most of us at some point have done something similar to this. Not that we're trying to kill someone, but in some different way. I wonder how many of us have wanted something so badly and God said no, and we just kept rushing on. And then God said no, and he put a checkpoint up. He put a check stop to stop us and turn us around. And we wanted that thing so badly, we just blew through it and went, kept going. That's what Saul's doing here. God in his love says, no, you're not going to arrest David. And he blows through a check stop. God says, no, you're not going to arrest David. Saul blows through a check stop. Now he's going to go himself. I'm going to tell you something. When God puts up check stops to stop you, when he says no, it doesn't turn out well to keep blowing through. It doesn't, it doesn't turn out well. It's not going to turn out well for Saul. Ultimately, now not in this chapter, not in this exact story, but ultimately, God is going to put up check stop after check stop after check stop. Saul's going to keep blowing through them. And ultimately, him and his son Jonathan are going to lose their lives because he refuses to take no. But I wonder if there is someone here this week in this service. I have a feeling there are some people here that this point is for you. This is a warning for you. And you're like Saul. You are so determined. There's something in your life that you want. And God has said no. And other people have told you no. And then God in his love, not because he's a killjoy, but because he knows what's best for you, has put check stops there. But you are so determined, you keep blowing through the check stops. I'm going to tell you right now, God knows what's best for you, and this doesn't end well. Maybe you're, maybe you're here today, and you're married, and you're pursuing a relationship that's going to end up in a bad place with someone that you're not married to. And you're just so determined. There's things going on in your heart. I don't know what they are. Anger, woundedness, I don't know. But you are determined. This is the only way I can ever be happy. You have to realize if God says no, if you knew everything he knew, you would say no too. And he's put check stops and he's put this to stop you, to turn you around. And you keep blowing through. It's not going to turn out well. Maybe you're here today and you're desperate to get married. And you're so desperate, you've connected with someone and you felt a check in your spirit. 
You've felt a check in your spirit and you know God's been warning you and other people have been warning you, but you are so determined. You are so desperate to have this relationship. You're so desperate to make it work. You're so desperate to get married. You're going to blow through the check stops and God is lovingly going to put these things and you think, God's a killjoy. God doesn't care about me. No, no, it's the opposite. He does care about you and that's why he's turning you around, but you keep blowing through the check stops. I can tell you horror stories of people who have blown through those check stops and it doesn't end well. And you never end up years down the road going, I'm so glad I did what God didn't want me to do. I'm so much happier. You never end, it never ends well. Maybe you're desperate to go into business, into a partnership with someone, into buying something big or making a big investment, and you're just so desperate to do it. You've wanted it all your life, and God's warning you, now is not the time. And other people have told you no, but you keep blowing through the check stops. I'm going to tell you, he's not a killjoy. He's telling you no because it's for your good. He's telling you no because it's for your good. Don't blow through the check stops. Don't resist those promptings of the Spirit. The path of joy lies in obeying God, not in resisting Him. Well, Saul's going to press on, right? And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. We can see that he just goes into a trance. He's out of control. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. God says, I'm going to humiliate you. And this is still better than dying. In the end, Saul's going to lose his life because he won't even listen to this check stop. But he's going to keep, he is so determined. He is so angry. He's so bitter. He's going to do it. But God says, I'm going to humiliate you. I'm going to show everyone here that my hand is on David and my hand is against you. I'm going to humiliate you. And he does humiliate him. And he lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Well, we move to David now, the very next verse, which is also the next chapter. Remember, there was no chapter headings in the original. So we just keep going. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, okay? And so we're going to see, again, more things getting stripped away from David, right? He already has had to leave his wife. He's lost his home, his comforts, his position, his salary. He goes to Samuel. Samuel was supposed to be a safe place, his mentor, his protector. He now has to even flee from Samuel. He's only got one thing left. He's only got one refuge left. He's only got one crutch left, and that's his best friend, Jonathan. And we're going to see God take that one away from him too. But he flees away from Samuel. Imagine what he's feeling now. Systematically, everything's being taken away from him. He flees from Samuel and Naoth. And came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And here's the thing. He hasn't done anything wrong, has he? He's only done everything right. He hasn't been proud. We looked at that in a, in a message on, on him and, and Goliath. He wasn't that he was confident in himself. He was full of faith in God. He hasn't been proud. He's been loyal. He's worked hard. He's only done everything God wanted him to do. What have I done? What is my guilt? This stuff isn't being stripped away from him because he's being punished by God. God is not punishing him. God is molding him. And it's exactly here that a lot of Christians have a wrong picture of God. And you, you won't see this with David. But a lot of Christians, when God has taken them through this process where he's stripping everything away because he wants to show them that I am enough for you, then they think, why is God mad at me? And they get bitter. Why is God punishing me? Why is God disciplining me? God's not disciplining David. God's not punishing David. God is molding David. And he's systematically taking these things away. And they're not bad things. They're good. It's good to have a mentor. It's good to have a protector. It's good to have a, a wife. It's good to have these things. It's good to be blessed by God and to work hard and, and to be successful. All these things are, are good. But there are certain times when God says, now I have to show you that I'm better than these things. 
And so he's going to systematically strip everything away from David until all David has is him. What have I done? What is my guilt? He says to Jonathan. And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Okay? That he seeks my life. Now what's going to happen when you get into this place, when you get into this place where things are being stripped away from you? At a certain point, you know, most Christians can take a couple of hits. Isn't that true? You take one hit, you take two hits, you take three hits, and you're still standing there. I'm going to have my faith in God. And you're pursuing God. But where it starts to get difficult is where it gets to four, five, six, seven, and it's just knock after knock after knock after knock. And you're okay with him taking away the first couple of safe refuges. You're okay with him taking away the first couple of crutches, but you still have a couple over here. And as he just systematically keeps taking them out from under you, at a certain point, every Christian gets to a point where they're going to have to make a choice. Am I going to be like Job's wife and say, I'm going to curse God and die. I'm going to get bitter and I'm going to get hard. Or am I going to be like David and am I going to get soft? The more hits I take. Am I going to curse God and die or am I going to get soft? Here's a wonderful verse, Isaiah 50, verse 10. I love this. This is a verse about exactly this time, a time like this in your life. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. There are times in your life when God has taken everything away and you can't even hear his voice. And you just go, God, where are you? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. There are those times sometimes when you can't hear God's voice even and you're confused and you've taken so many shots you don't know which way they're coming from anymore and you don't know where God is and you start to wonder, I'm being punished, has God forgotten me? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. It doesn't mean God's mad at you. It means he's molding you. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. This is all you have left to do. Trust in the name of the Lord, and rely on his God. This is where so many of us, we just get squirming, we get mad, we're trying to do something, we're giving up on God, we're going down the path of being Job's wife. I'm just going to curse God and die. I'm just bitter. What is God doing? We're yelling out at him. Isaiah 50 verse 10 tells us that when we're in those moments, when we let him who walks in darkness and has no light, there's only one thing left for you to do, and that is keep trusting. Just keep trusting. Yeah, but I can't hear God's voice right now. He's not giving me any more promises. Hang on to the promises you got last year. Hang on to the promises you got last month. Hang on to the promises you got last week. Hang on to whatever you've gotten in the past. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on your God. That's, that's our calling. And at some point, God's going to take you to that place in your life, and you're going to have the choice to curse God and die, or you're going to have the choice, am I going to trust God? You're going to see David is going to trust God throughout this entire thing. He's going to trust God. We keep going in verse 2 to 1 Samuel 20. And Jonathan said to him, that's David, far from it you shall not die. He doesn't believe David, right? It's not that he's being bad. Have you ever run into an evil person? It's evil, evil people can be very deceptive. Isn't that true? And Saul is an evil person. He's trying to kill David. You ever run into a person like that? This person is doing wicked things to you and nobody else can see it. Nobody else believes you. Jonathan says, my, my, my dad's not trying to kill you, Right? Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Let me tell you something. When you have evil people and they've deceived everyone else, but they're coming after you, here's my comfort for you. You're not the only one this has ever happened to. 
Okay? There's your comfort. Trust in God. Okay? Trust in God. You're not the only one. David's been there. Lots of people have been there. Lots of people in this church have been there. Most of us will probably meet someone like that at some point in our life. There'll be someone in your life, they're going to come after you, and they'll have pulled the wool over everybody else's eyes. Everybody say, that is the nicest person in the world, but you know, this person's trying to kill me. Jonathan, are you kidding me? He's not, right? He's not. But Jonathan's a good friend. So verse 3, David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks... Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. And then what they do is, this is the rest of the chapter, they come up with this elaborate plan. And basically the plan is, is Saul, I mean, imagine the gall of Saul. He just went and tried to kill David in Naoth, and Naoth, and God put him into a trance so he couldn't do it. He expects David, though, to be at dinner at the palace. I mean, talk about gall, right? So Jonathan and David are come up with an elaborate plan. Basically, the plan is, David, don't show up for supper, okay? And when dad asks where you are, I'm going to tell him, this is Jonathan, I'm going to tell him that I gave you permission to go to Bethlehem for a family thing. So that night, David doesn't show up for supper, okay? Saul doesn't say anything the first night. Second night, David doesn't show up for supper. And Saul asks Jonathan, he says, Jonathan, where's David? And Jonathan says, I gave David permission to go to Bethlehem for a family thing. Well, right then, right, Saul, Saul's true colors are exposed, and he blows a gasket, right? And he yells at Jonathan and says, you're protecting that, that guy, and I wanna, you need to kill him, and blah, blah, blah. He goes like this, ends up throwing a spear at his own son. He blows a gasket, okay? And then Jonathan and David have worked out this code, right? Famous story. Jonathan goes out and shoots an arrow and tells the arrow boy, keep running. And that's the code to David, who's behind, hiding behind some rocks, that my father is trying to kill you and you need to run. So we pick up the story in verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, I want you to put yourself in David's shoes. Don't just read this and have an unfeeling hard heart. I want you to feel, he's had the wife, the house, the position, Samuel his mentor, and now he's going to lose his best friend. He's got to flee away. He doesn't even have his best friend as a crutch anymore. David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times and they kissed one another and wept with another, David weeping the most. This is the last thing he had left. God, you're going to take that one away from me too? David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So David now has to flee even his best friend. He's got nothing left. He's got nothing left. What do you do when God's taken everything piece by piece by piece by piece? Now you're going to see next chapter, David's going to get super desperate now. Chapter 21, verse 10, And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. You know who Achish, the king of Gath, is? Gath is the capital city of the Philistines, okay? Don't read this story and just go, oh, of course he went to Achish, king of Gath. Like, this is David we're talking about. These are his arch enemies, okay? Remember, these are the people, I mean, this is utter desperation. Have you ever gone to this point where God has taken so many things away from you that you actually just lose your marbles and start doing crazy stuff? That's David right here, okay? This is not... David making a calculated decision. Where am I going to go now? Oh, the Philistine country. That's, that's kind of nice country. I could see, you know, kind of vacationing there. No, 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 no. This is utter irrationality. 
He, he, how far this guy has fallen from this confident kid who knocked out Goliath to utter desperation. This would be like me going to someone, and I don't have anyone like this so far that I know of, at least anyway, who, so going to someone's house who wants to kill me and poison me, knocking on the door and saying, can I have a bed for the night? Okay? He's killed their big champion, Goliath. He has repeatedly led the Israelites in battle against them and defeated them. There's a whole story in there, which I did not preach a message on because I don't know how I would do it, but there's a whole story in there where he kills 200 of them and takes off their foreskins for Saul to get the wife, and it's crazy, okay? There's a whole bunch of things here. I'll just tell you this right now. The Philistines really want him dead, okay? And this is where he goes. This is craziness, okay? This guy is complete desperate now. He's lost everything. And this is what happens to people. You lose everything and suddenly crazy things don't seem crazy anymore. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Like, the gall of this guy. How many of us has he killed? Is this not David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid. He was much afraid. Man, it's only, it's only three chapters before this, right? Or four chapters before this, chapter 17. And he goes to Saul and says, let me take down Goliath in the name of the Lord. Let me take down Goliath in the name of the Lord. He had all this boldness. And I've seen Christians like this too. And, he, and David hasn't done anything bad. He should have been bold. He was bold in the Lord. That wasn't bad. I've seen Christians like this too. God has wired them to do big things. And they have the gift of faith. And they step out boldly and they do things. And then God takes them through a season. He says, I want to do a deeper work in your heart. Not because you've done something wrong. Not because I'm mad at you. And he systematically strips everything away. And the first couple of hits, they're still bold for the Lord. And the third hit, they're a little less bold. But it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And finally, there's a point where he brings them down so low that all of a sudden, they lose their sense of identity and, and, and confidence. And suddenly, they're filled with self-doubt. That's David right here. He's had everything taken away from him, and now suddenly this kid who was absolutely bold in the face of a giant is absolutely terrified and doing irrational things. This guy who boldly went into battle against the Philistines time and time again is groveling now before the Philistines. Again, he hasn't done anything wrong, but he's had everything stripped away from him, and he's filled with self-doubt, and he's got no more confidence left. And so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. He's now even going to lose his dignity. In their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. He's lost his self-respect. He's just been hit again and again and again and again. But you want, you want to know what's really encouraging to me is that in all of this, this is happening, and David's going through this stuff, and you go, oh my goodness, how much more can this guy take? But if you look just beneath the surface, you will see. It doesn't look like it. When you just look at the story, it's like, well, God, what are you doing to this poor guy? But if you look beneath the surface, you can see God's protecting hand there with David the whole time. I want to show you this. Sometimes you've got to look beneath the surface. Verse 14, then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see, the man is mad. Why, have you, why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? Like, do, I, do, I, do I have a, a shortage of crazy people here? That you brought, bring this guy to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And he actually kicks him out. Now, let me ask you something. Does this make any sense? I mean, this guy has killed how many Philistines? He's killed Goliath. This guy has utterly ravaged the Philistines. It shouldn't matter that he is nuts. 
Achish should be torturing him and having fun torturing him to death right here and right now. Instead, Achish kicks him out of the palace. This doesn't make a single bit of sense. This is another miracle. Within the beating, God is protecting David. Isn't that true? I mean, the overall circumstances haven't changed yet. If you just look at the overall story, Saul still wants to kill him. He still doesn't have his wife back. He doesn't have his best friend back. He doesn't have Samuel back. He's got no one to protect him. He's all alone. If you look at the overall story, he still looks finished. But if you look beneath the surface, you can see that God, within the beating, within the tribulation, within the storm, God's protecting hand is protecting him and doing miracles all along. And here's one of them. Achish should kill him. This is Achish's chance to get rid of David, and he doesn't do it. That's a miracle. Saul falling over in a trance and lying naked all day and night. That's a miracle. Not a miracle you want to witness, but that's a miracle. He's protecting David. Okay? These are little miracles. I'm convinced that this is true of all of God's children. You go through stuff like this, and God is stripping you away, and it's so easy to just focus on, what am I losing? What am I losing? What am I losing? God, what are you doing? But if by the Spirit you will trust let him who walks in darkness and has no light at all trust the name of the Lord your God. If you will trust in God and look beneath the surface, you will see the whole time through that storm, God's protecting hand was with you the entire way. And there will be these miracles beneath the surface. The overall thing isn't changing, but underneath the surface, God is protecting you. He is walking with you. He is with you. And you've got to open your eyes up and trust him, and you've got to look there, and you'll see, he does love me. He is with me. He does love me. He is with me. We can ask God to show us that. Next verse. We come to one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. Next verse. Next chapter, 22 verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now he's all alone. Even, he can't even have his enemies, his company. He can't have his wife. He can't have his position. He can't have Samuel. He can't have Jonathan. He can't even have his enemies. He's got nothing. He runs off to the cave of Adullam. He's now all by himself. Everything is gone now. It's just him and God. And what do you do when you come to this point, when God's taken everything else away? I'll tell you what some Christians do nowadays. They distract themselves with media. God hasn't done this to you because he's mad at you. He's done this to you because he finally wants you to do business with him and he wants to reveal himself to you. But a lot of Christians can't handle the pain of having everything stripped away. So they turn to, I, when they get home from work, just let me just watch enough TV and enough social media that I don't have to think about it, that I can go to bed and get up and do the next day and they never do business with God. You know what you do here when you're in the cave of Adullam and you're all by yourself and God has taken every single thing away from you? What you do then is it's time to do business with God. And late at night, you go off to a room by yourself. You don't just go to sleep. It's not going away. The reason you're here is because God wants to show you that he's good. And so it's right here. You say, what do I do when I'm at that place and it's all gone? This is where you get off in a room by yourself and you say, now, Lord, it's just you and me. I've got nothing left. I got no friends to rely on. I got no finances to rely on. I got no anything that I've relied on all my life. You've taken away all my, self re all my safe refuges and all I have left is you. This is where, this is what it means to be a Christian. Now you go. Nobody can do business with God for you. I can't do it. No pastor here at Southland can do your business with God for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your friends can't do it for you. You can have other people praying for you. That's great. But at a certain point, you have to go into a room alone with God and you have to cry out to him. And that's what David's going to do here in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1. 
You know, it's amazing. As we read through this story in Samuel, we get the external circumstances of the story. In the Psalms, we get the internal story, what's happening in David's heart. Now, what's really amazing is when you connect the Psalms to the stories where they were written. And we can do that in this case. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, David runs off to the cave of Adullam. We actually know which psalm he wrote in that cave. It's Psalm 142. And it's a short psalm, seven verses. I'm going to read it to you. This is what you do when everything's been stripped away from you. And it's just you and God. And you've already chosen. I'm not going to be Job's wife. I'm not going to curse God. I'm going to trust God no matter what. Psalm 142. This psalm really comes alive when you realize the circumstances that he's writing it in. And this is what David writes from the cave of Adullam. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. This is what I was telling you before. This is what you do. You don't go and watch TV and deaden the senses. You don't go run off and get yourself so busy that you don't have to think about it. You get off alone with God and you tell him your troubles. This is what it means to be a follower of God. This is why he's got you where he's got you. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. You've been so mad at God and you think God doesn't care. He knows your way. He knew everything that was going to happen to you before it happened. And he hasn't abandoned you in that place. He's been walking with you. And if you would look beneath the surface, you would see he's been protecting you even on that path, even in all the pain you've been in. He knows your way. He knows every step. He's been watching you the whole way. Have you gone into a room by yourself and have you thought about that for a while? Have you thanked him? Nobody can do that for you. In a path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. Look at how these lines just explode off the page when you realize what's happened to him. No refuge remains to me. Haven't we seen that in this story? Every single refuge has been taken away from him. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. And that's why I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. You want to know why David was a man after God's own heart? You're seeing it right here. I've had a lot of people ask me over the years, why, how could David be a man after God's own heart? Look at some of the stuff he did. The adultery, the murder. I'll tell you something right now. You don't have to be perfect to be a man after God's own heart. That's, that's a message from David's story. You don't have to be perfect to be a man after God's own heart. You want to be a man after God's own heart? You want to see why David was a man after God's own heart? You can see it right here. When everything was stripped away from him, he didn't curse God, he trusted in God. He said, you've taken everything away, and he says, I got nothing left, and I'm all by myself in a cave. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. That is some of the purest, most wonderful worship you can ever give God in this life. Everything's gone, and you tell him, I love you anyway. Have you ever done that to him? Have you ever lost something, and instead of getting mad, have you ever lost something dear to you or gone through a struggle and wondered why God hasn't answered your prayers? Have you ever gone from there and instead of being bitter, gone and gotten on your knees and told God, I'm going to love you even if you never answer this prayer? I'm going to love you even if you never answer this prayer. I'm going to love you even if I never get out of this cave. Have you ever offered that kind of worship to God? It'll change your life. It'll change your life. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. I want you to notice how in all of his pain, David stays soft to God. 
he is hurting so bad. It's right here where it's so easy to let anger come in. Anger shields our hearts from feeling pain. We turn our pain into anger. It's a defense mechanism. David doesn't get angry. He remains soft. He feels his pain, and he trusts in God. Now, you know what's amazing? If you will stay soft to God in your pain, it's right here where you will begin to see new shoots of life come up in your life. We're going to see that right here. We're going to see that in the very next verse. Just a moment. A fire, when a forest fire goes through a forest, it just destroys everything. Everything's black and charred trunks. Everything's gone. It's all burned. It looks like it's lifeless. And it's always amazing. Right after a forest fire, you watch. Very shortly after that, out of all the black will come these little shoots of green start to come up and there's new life. And the same will be true in your life. If you will stay soft to God, you will see new shoots of life begin to come up. And we're going to see this in, in, the, in, the, in the very next verse here in 1 Samuel 22. If we finish verse 1. David's all alone by himself in a cave. He writes Psalm 142. He cries out to God. And look at the next thing that happens. And when his brothers, okay, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now, wait a minute. These are the guys that rejected him all his life. Remember, we looked at that earlier in the series. They were ashamed of him. They rejected him. They didn't think much of him. They despised him. These are the last people you would think would go down to him in the cave. Isn't it amazing? David stays soft to God. And out of the soil of his pain and softness, suddenly love comes from the most unexpected places. When you stay soft to God in your pain instead of bitterness, love and relationships and new life will come out of the most unexpected places. He's lost everything. He already thought he had lost his family. They rejected him a long time ago. And yet, here it is from the most unexpected places. All of a sudden, it's his family that comes to him. What's all that about? And then verse 2, look at this. And everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt, right? All the winners in Israel. All the winners, right? Everyone who was in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is in bitter uh, or was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. He was the original Robin Hood, right? The original Robin Hood. And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Out of the soil of David's pain, suddenly new life and ministry and relationships begin to spring up. Out of the blackened char of destruction, God has stripped everything away, and you think, God, what are you doing? But if we look beneath the surface, we can see God's hand has been with him the whole way. And then at the end of it, we see that God never wastes your pain. If you will stay soft with him in your pain, there is no way but that new life is going to come out of that. Life will come out of it. God will make sure of it. Fruitfulness will come out of it. And suddenly a whole new ministry and new relationships and love in the most unexpected places comes into David's life because he remains soft to God in his pain. And did you ever think about this? These 400 men and their families that gather to David here at the cave of Adullam, these were the lowest of the low in Israel. You ever think that maybe part of the reason God was doing all this in David's life was because he was answering their prayers? Because if David had just stayed successful in the palaces of the king, you think he ever would have had them gathered to him? Absolutely not. But these people were the lowest of the low, and God says to David, in order for you to reach them, I've got to bring you from here, and I've got to bring you to there. I've got to bring you low so that you can be there for the low. God will never waste your pain. Well, he's doing something in your life. He wants to reveal his goodness to you, but if you'll let him, I'll tell you something else he's going to do. He wants you in your pain now to minister to others who are in pain. 
He wants you to open up your house and your life and your heart to people who have gone through some of the things like you've gone through. If you'll stay soft to God. Let's finish with a weekly challenge. I got two things. And then, and then we'll pray this and we'll sing a song of worship to Jesus. Two things. You could try this week. You could even try now as, as we pray. Take some time this week and just journal. Are there any areas in your life of pain and suffering right now? Just write them down. And then read Psalm 142. Call out to God in your pain. Tell him how you feel. And, and, and tell him you're going to worship him no matter what. That's a wonderful place to worship. Make a list of things in your life where you're suffering and then tell God, I'm going to worship you no matter what. I love you no matter what. That's powerful. And then I want you to do something else. Is take some time and ask God, now I want to sit here with you, Jesus, and I want you to show me some of the shoots of new life that are coming up in the blackened char of my life. Show me some of the new shoots of life that are coming up in the soil of my pain. And then a second thing you might want to spend a little time asking God about this week is, are there any areas of my life where you've been warning me to stop, but I've been barreling ahead? You don't want to keep barreling ahead. There's been a warning check in your spirit. Don't ignore those little whispers of the spirit. Take some time and take note of them. And then ask God, why is it that I'm so desperate for this thing? Let him minister to you in that and remind yourself that his way is the best way. It's the most joy-filled way. I want you to bow your heads with me now. I want you to close your eyes and let's Let's worship Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are worth it all. We want to be the kind of church, we want to be the kind of church family that brings you much joy because we, we are absolutely committed to worshiping you no matter what. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness in our lives. Would you reveal yourself? There's people here today that are going through a lot of stuff. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them in fresh ways this week. And Lord, would you help those of us who are barreling through check stops right now. Would you help us to turn around and go the way that you have for us? In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.